We are currently in a tour through the book of Revelation. This is our second installment, and we'll call this The Things That Are Present. We will be in this uh, mini-series just for a few weeks, The Things That Are Present. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 is where we're going to pick up today, all the way through 2, verse 11. And uh, today, in, in the next several months, we're in for a great time because we are going to uh, take some time and tour through this book. Now, I'll tell you what tour means. I gave you a little bit of an update uh, this morning. A tour, very much like a real physical tour of a place, takes in all the highlights. Make sure that you see the major parts. It will not take in every rabbit trail and every little uh, side trail that you could walk down. We could spend really years and years doing that uh, on a one-night-a-week basis. Uh, so we won't do that. My desire for you is, and this kind of helps you track with me, is I want to study this book like you would do it in your living room or in your bedroom or in your office as you come to parts that uh, maybe need some fulfillment, some uh, cross-referencing. We'll do that. We won't cross-reference everything. I won't uh, trace down every single Greek word here for you. We will do some. I want to read the book like you would read it. I want to use some of the things we learned over the last several Sunday. Uh, over the last several months when we were talking about how to study the Bible. Uh, and we looked at careful Bible interpretation and some general guidelines to follow, which we will follow, and so some specific principles uh, that in inductive Bible study that we will use as well. So we'll ask some questions as we see them, and we'll answer those questions. And I hope it will be enriching for you as we do that in a study a little bit different than what we're doing on Sunday morning. I think you'll get the feel of the pace uh, right away. But um, as we... Uh, are going over the next several months to do this. November 15th, when we first started this study, we allowed the book to introduce itself. We started in chapter 1 and verse 1, and we saw, and you can look there, in chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, you also notice this, I try to do a little review uh, each week that we come back, specifically Sunday nights, because there are some breaks uh, in our time of teaching where we have our Acts 2.46 and we have our PTAs and some other special uh, things that will happen. So I'll do a little more review on Sunday night than I do on Sunday morning. But also remember, uh, as if you're here very faithfully, that uh, only 80% of the church comes on any certain week. And so realize that 20% of the church didn't hear anything we said the previous week. And so although this may be review to you, it may be new to them, and it's important to bring everyone along. So that's kind of my philosophy about that. So bear with me and give me grace if I review a little longer than you'd prefer, but realize that others may benefit as well, and we'll for sure get into new things. But uh, last time we were together, November 15th, we introduced itself, and we saw in Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is where we get our English word for apocalypse. And it just simply means this. It is the revealing, the uncovering, the truth about Jesus, making him clear. Now, you'll notice also in your notes on Sunday night, uh, it's a little bit different than what we do on Sunday morning. Uh, on the back side of your notes, you'll find the previous night's notes filled in. So if you miss those, you will have the answers. Uh, the idea will be at the conclusion of, this, of the series, you can bind these. We will provide the small half-size notebooks that you can put all these notes in if you'd like to keep them. If they're helpful to you, you are welcome to do that. But that's the reason for that, to kind of help you as you track along. If you didn't get all the answers or if you were gone one week, you can still get the things we talked about. All right? So we saw Apocalypse. We understand what it means. And uh, just basically this, as you look at this book, until now, uh, things not known about Christ. In other words, we're going to learn things about Jesus that would not be known if it were not for this book. And so that's a... That's a fun thing to look forward to. And there's a dedication in chapter 1 and verses 4 through 7. You can look there, and you can just kind of read through there, and I'll just kind of track the high points. 
The book is from the Trinity. It is by an angel. It is to John, written down, sent to the seven churches, passed on to us to read, dedicated to Jesus Christ who is coming, and when he comes, every eye shall see him. Amen. All right, that's the dedication of the book, and I love that. Uh, That's a richness there about that, isn't it? That this book is from the Trinity, that it is by an angel and to John and written down. Just a great ring to it as we understand how important the book is to the Lord for us. And that's kind of a glimpse of what the book is about. It's about the coming of Jesus Christ. And when we say that, we are speaking specifically so that we can be clear and that you know where I am. We're speaking of the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. We are speaking of the second advent of Christ, which comes at the conclusion of the seven years tribulation. We are not speaking in this book about the rapture, which also will occur right previous, just previous to the beginning of the tribulation, in which the church will be caught away by Jesus Christ. Now, there is some discussion about that and has always been discussion about that, but we understand that to be what the scriptures teach, and that's what we teach. And so, just to be clear, that's what we're looking at as we look at this book, the glorious appearing of Christ and his coming. And so, that's a marvelous thing to think about. Now, look at verse 11, if you would, of chapter 1. And this is about the coming of Jesus. And John is told, write on a scroll uh, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so John is told to write down what he sees and then pass them on uh, what what he has written down to the churches. Actual cities, they actually existed. They had churches. They had local congregations. Now, verses 12 through 16, we saw the awesome appearance of Christ. John sees Jesus Christ. He is moving among the seven golden lampstands, and we've identified those as representative of each of a church. And seven is the number of fulfillment. So we know a full representation of the churches is here Christ at work amongst the churches and uh, a representation of all churches and Christ moving among them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But he is ministering to the churches. He is trimming their lamps. He is doing his work of purification. He's doing his work of judgment. He's applying wisdom and so forth. And John sees Christ in his glory ministering to the church. And he is still doing that today. And that's a marvelous thought. And, and John and I were talking about this back in the back. I think we should always be aware that Christ is at work ministering to his churches even right up until today, because see, as we're speaking of the churches, we're speaking of the church age in which we still live. And so Christ is still doing that. I think that, and I speak to myself as well as anyone else, as I sit in the congregations uh, from time to time and listen to ministries going on and pastors speaking, that I should always be aware that Christ is present there. And if I could see with spirit eyes, uh, I would be aware that his angels and he himself minister inside the church. What a marvelous thing that is to think about. And sobering, isn't it? It's liable to keep my mind from wandering quite so much when I shouldn't be wandering, right? And uh, not in a guilt mode, but just basically because I love my master and I want to be found being faithful, right? And so that's what I think about as I think about that. Now look at verse 19. It says this, right, therefore, what you've seen. All right, and as we get right there, the book is very practical. What had he seen? Well, he just saw that first vision of Christ ministering in the church, right? Right, what you've seen, Christ ministering in the church. What is now? That's the next thing you see. That's the things, and what are the things that are now? Well, uh, those going to speak to the time that, in which John lives. They're the present tense types of things for John, and uh, those come in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And then it says what will take place later, and that is chapter 4 and following. And so what we have really is an outline of the book, and that's what we're going to follow too. And that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? 
uh, write what you've seen, what is now, what will take place later. And that's uh, an introduction. Chapter 1 has to deal with the things that he's seen, which is that vision of Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, the things which are, which are the churches going on and ministering during that time. Chapter 4 through 22, the things that shall be hereafter. All right? And we're going to break that book down too. So, let's move on to the things which are, the present tense types of things. I'd like you to look at chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 11, then we'll come back and we'll work our way through it. All right? Chapter 2, verse 1. You read in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard. And I'll give you some verse cues so we can stay together. Okay? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, verse 3, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's stop right there. It all begins with Christ being revealed in the church age. He's moving among the churches, uh, ministering to the churches. He holds those who lead the church in his hand. And, uh, and that's what happens when we meet together as well. And I'm sure you're aware of that. And and in that ministry comes seven letters to seven individual churches. It's important to understand some items as we look closely at these churches. First of all, these are seven real churches. Uh, they really existed. They existed in those cities where they are stated to have existed. And if you study the letters in detail, uh, you'll find that each letter fits the historical, the, the cultural, the economic, geographic context in which it was written. So very practical letters written to seven churches, literal churches, literal cities. All right, but they are also, and this is important for your notes, they are also representative churches. It's important to remember that because the letter is practical for us as well. And remember John said seven churches and that seven is the number of what in Revelation? Fullness, yeah, fullness. Seven is the number of fullness because each one of them has a unique character all its own. It represents churches of all times because each one of them is a special kind of church. And in, the, in all the periods of history, uh, this, there, of the church, there have always been these kinds of churches. There is not a reason to think that they're in some kind of chronological order. 
In other words, there's no reason to think that the church of Ephesus is the one that was during John's time and then it moves on through history and somewhere along there you're going to have you know, Sardis and then finally at, right before Christ comes would be the Laodicean church. No, there's no reason to think that that would be the case and to manipulate it that way. Just simply seven churches, present tense churches for John. Uh, we're still in the church age. Those present tense churches can apply to us as well. And we are still there in the church age. And so, as I just said, it's present for us, and uh, all the churches represented are still present with us. Okay? So you can jot that down in your notes. That's answer number two. Each of them gets a special message from the Lord. And uh, that's how God's Word is. Uh, and we know that for sure. It's so, pr- it's so current. It's so relevant. Uh, and so as they get a message, we get a message, don't we? And that's how it is with the churches that were written. And as we, as we look at the letter in Ephesians, as we look at Thessalonians, as we look at Galatians, realize those are letters to a real church with real elders who led them. We benefit from those letters. We benefit from these letters as well. Okay? And so we have uh, a special message from the Lord. So this is Christ's ministry to the church age, the things which are now. And so he's going to speak specifically to these churches, the things that he sees And wouldn't it be lovely if he could just come up right now and speak to Berean? Wouldn't it be great to sit and listen and have his evaluation of our church and exactly how it was? How many people then would vote and say, I don't think that's right? (laughs) Right. Uh, Sometimes uh, we we get so preoccupied with the ability to do that that we forget that Christ, if Christ could actually tell us, I think we would be saying, okay, we'll change, right? And uh, we're hesitant to do it any other time, but if Christ said it, we would. And so... Uh, he does speak, though, through his word, so we'll listen closely because it never goes out of date. The first one's to Ephesus. So let's give you some Ephesus fast facts, okay? And that's what I'll do. I won't hit everything about it, but we'll give you some, some, uh, some context here, some cultural context, if you will. Um, and this is the present age for John, present age for us. Uh, but just most a general overview, you can have these in your notes. Ephesus was the center of the worship of the false god Diana. The center for the worship of the false god, Diana. In fact, the temple there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a marvelous temple as far as man-made temples for false gods go. Uh, They poured a lot of money into it. It was very important to their culture, to uh, their economy. And perhaps you can remember uh, in Acts 19 of Demetrius, the silver worker, and all the problems he caused Paul as a result of Paul's ministry around there. Okay, And so very, very important to their economy. Uh, this worship of Diana, very important to uh, culture. It was also known as the Gateway to Asia, which is now modern Turkey. Okay? It was known as the Gateway to Asia. That was Ephesus. Now, thirdly, the church was probably established by Priscilla and Aquila. And you recognize those names from Acts 18, verse 26. Likely planted by them. And this, uh, would you like to have this in your, on your church wall as a picture? Of, uh, like some churches put their pictures of their pastors over the years. Uh, they had Paul for a pastor for three years. And so I guess there would be some bragging rights there, right? Well, the Apostle Paul was our pastor for three years, according to Acts 20, verse 31. And this is the city where John was arrested when he was taken to Patmos. That's where he was as he was picked up and hauled off to an island and deposited there for uh, teaching the Word of God and evangelizing. So, Center for the Worship of Diana, the Gateway to Asia, established by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Paul is a pastor for three years. John was arrested there. All right, let's look back at verse 1, okay? Let's see what uh, the Lord has to say uh, to those there at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who is that? That's Jesus, that's right. Says this. So it's pretty clear, right? Jesus is about to speak, so we all perk up. Verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Those are all, uh, that's good to hear that, isn't it? Uh, discernment for the church, an ability to discern true and false doctrine and true and false teachers, a perseverance and endurance. The church by this time had been here for about 40 years. And so the church was well established and it had a well established history of doing faithful ministry. Verse 4. So he has the positives. And for all you teachers, right, that's how you start, right? First uh, First call at the beginning of the semester is to all the parents to say, we lo- I love your kid, and it's great to have him in my class. And then it won't, be the, it won't be the first call when you have to say something negative to your child, right? Well, um, the Lord says the positive things here are marvelous things, too. Here's verse 4. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove kineo, your lampstand out of its place, topos, unless you repent. And that's an interesting thought, that uh, he's the one who places the lamps there. He's the one that keeps them trimmed and makes them work well and burn bright. And he says, if you don't remember your first love, if you don't go back to what you did before, I'm going to remove your lamp from its place. Now, I guess the best illustration of that would be that from time to time in our house, uh, you'll, there'll be a lamp that starts going on the frets. Do anybody have those in your house? You have to like turn the switch like three or four times on the side and it's, sometimes it stays on and sometimes in the middle of a conversation it'll blink off. Well, it's not very long till pretty soon you just get tired of that, right? And you're sitting there talking and you've got company over and boop, the light goes off. And so you just pick it up and where do you put it? Well, it starts about the attic and then it makes its way to the yard sale, right? And, uh, but the idea there is, really that's the idea, that I'm going to take away, I'm going to remove from its place uh, your lampstand. And so... This is a church that's orthodox in doctrine, but cold, and it's left its first love. That's really the idea. I have this against you. You've left your first love. That's exactly what he says. Now, uh, this is a church that's orthodox. They have the right doctrine. They're teaching the right thing. They're able to discern right things and right people, and they're able to discern falseness. Uh, they couldn't bear evil people. They couldn't bear false prophets and teachers. They endured and were faithful, showed up every day, did their thing that they were supposed to do, right? Showed up for their ministry. They were faithful to sound doctrine, but they lost what? They were cold and orthodox, right? They were cold. They lost their first love of Christ and all those other things, beloved, didn't replace the most important thing there was, and that was the love for Christ, the passionate love for their master. And all the other things and all the other busyness and all the other checking in and doing it and and knowing right doctrine and being able to argue correctly and all those things were not as important in Christ's perspective of the church as their passionate love for him. Now that kind of church has existed in every age and it still exists today. They have the right message. They're just cold and indifferent about it. Now look at verse 6. Yes, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And this is an interesting situation, and we find it repeated in the Church of Pergamos, and I'm going to comment on it more extensively there because uh, Jesus comments more on it, and I want to take you through it. But I'll just say this for now. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we find Nicholas appointed 
as a precursor to deacons. As some call it the first deacons. I would say that it was a model for us as a deacon. But 6 verse 5, we find Nicholas appointed as a deacon. And the early church historians, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria particularly, uh, tell us that he was a false believer. And so uh, what you have is, and that really, it's interesting how Satan does that. What you have is you have someone in leadership who's not even a believer. And it happens in churches. Um, people come in. Um, we're not careful as we evaluate their appeal for membership. We, we don't ask them to write out their testimony. We don't question them hard about their relationship to Christ. We're just taking word for it. We're not looking for fruit. Not allowing a, a try time to see if this is exactly... If what they say is actually what they do, and um, it happens from time to time in churches. I've uh, been in churches and pastored even churches that have had, when I first arrived, people who I would evaluate had no relationship with Christ and were serving as deacons or trustees. And if you think that uh, there's sometimes friction among believers as they desire uh, to know the Lord's will uh, in the direction of the church, you can imagine how much uh, difficulty it is when you have individuals who are in leadership who do not know Christ at all. Uh, Satan loves that. That's a perfect setup for him. Because you have individuals there who their main job will be, and although they don't know this, their main job is to make sure that nothing successful ever takes place and that all we do is just kind of spin. And so this is, the, this is really the issue here. No doubt uh, he caused much damage to the Jerusalem church but was rooted out of that church only to move on to another, and you find that today as well. People who are troublemakers in one church will finally be rooted out, uh, be frozen out or asked to leave, and will move from one church to another only to begin the very same thing again. As a family from Florida, uh, we're remaining nameless, but uh, we had to be put out of the church because of the, the rebellious and discontent that they continually exhibited in business meetings and uh, inappropriate uh, comments. And we're asked to leave, put under church discipline, only to move right uh, down the street to begin again. The same type of thing. I found out very recently that he is serving as a deacon in that church. And so I, I pity the pastor who is there because I've sensed no change. But this is very, very common in uh, churches. And uh, we see that, and perhaps it's happened here at Berean. You may know that, but uh, that is how that works. So we find out that they hated uh, that the deeds of there. No doubt it caused much trouble there. Uh, very difficult to root people out once they've got in so deep into leadership. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God always wants to speak to his church. Isn't that great? I love that. It's a common, you're going to see this commonly as we look at the churches. He who has an ear to hear. God always has something to what? To say. Yeah. He wants to know if we'll have an ear to hear. That's in other words, will we put to work what he says? Will we evaluate where we are? Will we be interested in what he has to say? Are you ready to hear? In other words, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And uh, that's pretty neat. I just want to just this real, real quick clue, and we'll do this as we go on. Did you, uh, what's he talking about, basically? If you overcome, you're going to get to go where? Well, where's the tree of life in the paradise of God? Where would that be? And you know this word, right? It starts with an H. There you go. All right. You can be bold. Just be bold. All right. Uh, heaven. That's, right. that's pretty neat, isn't it? And uh, does that sound like a physical place? Yeah. It sounds like a physical place to me, doesn't it? sounds like there's something growing there. And what? This is great news to me, all right? I love sitting at the table and eating. And there's something growing there. And guess what? I think it's special. <laughs> you think it's what? I think it's special. Not oh, it's special, all right. But it's a, this is important. It's a physical place. 
And you were created with a physical body, weren't you? And that's, you're going to have a, a perfect body at some point. And you're going to be reestablished on a perfect earth, aren't you? A remade earth. But in the intermediate heaven where you're going to go while you wait for this perfect earth, you're going to have the ability to, to eat. And I think that's pretty neat. We know that from the marriage supper of the Lamb, don't we? But we also confirmed here, and although uh, in, the, in the future final heaven, the eternal heaven, which we know Jerusalem comes down and, and the Lord remakes the earth, there's going to be physical bodies and there's going to be partaking of something the Lord has made. He desires that for you. Don't ever get into the idea that this is some esoterical spiritual place where you're just going to float around and, and sing you know, hymns forever with your wings folded behind you. Okay? You're created with a physical body. It's corrupted from sin. But what the Lord made was good. And he's going to remake it perfect again. Okay? And that's your future home. And that's a glorious thing to think about. And we don't th- talk about it too much anymore in the church. And I think because we don't remember where we're going to go, we're not sure why we're living now. Right? Kind of grasping for the things that uh, uh, here on earth when we should be waiting for that one to come. But anyway, that was just, that's all free. Okay? But uh, I just want to throw that in. But uh, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat the tree of life and the paradise of God. Well, what's that mean? What's an overcomer? Well, John himself described that for us in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is his own definition of an overcomer. I think I've got it on the screen. Yes, right there. For this is the love of God, uh, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's the scripture I used with you today, this morning. For whatever is born of God, what? It sounds like an overcomer, right? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith, right? That's marvelous. What's an overcomer? Someone with faith, right? Someone with faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What's that sound like? Somebody who's a believer, right? Believer in Jesus Christ. Someone who's been redeemed, who's been saved. That's an overcomer. He who overcomes will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Let's move on. The second church we meet is the church at Smyrna. Fast facts of Smyrna, okay? Let's just do a couple of things so we know what it's like there. This is the modern city of Izmar, Turkey. All right? The city still exists. Modern city of Izmar, Turkey. Emperor worship was huge here. Emperor worship, very big. 26 AD, they petitioned Tiberius to allow the community to build a temple to him. (laughs) That always makes me chuckle. Dear Tiberius, We'd like to build a temple so we could worship you. Would that be okay? I'm sure he appointed uh, government money to have that constructed. All right. Always known for its beautiful buildings, very important uh, architecture, science and medicine, leading industries here. And the reason I'm saying this is because you see these referred to, okay, as as he talks to the church, a lot of times you'll see the characteristics of the city there. All right. And and, uh, in contradistinction, the things the city thought were great, God doesn't think is great, but he's going to give them the real thing. All right, you're going to see this right now as you go through it. Mount Pagos is in the center of the city, ringed with beautiful buildings like a crown. And you're going to see that wording here in just a minute. You can note this so that you know that emperor worship was huge. Just over 50 years after John's death, and this is a neat little fact, the current pastor there was a disciple of John called Polycarp. Have you ever heard of his name? Polycarp was the pastor there. Did you know that he was burned? He was burned alive at the age of 86 for refusing to worship Caesar. He was the pastor of that church. And I guess that uh, you can think of lots of ways that uh, would be distasteful in having to leave a church or, you know, a retirement after, you know, after you've served in the ministry. But whatever your retirement is, it's got to be better than the immediate one that Polycarp had to suffer, right? I mean, uh, 
you might have to leave a church, but at least you don't get burned anymore, right? But Polycarp was burned. You're not cracking with me too much, are you? That was supposed to be a joke. Never mind. It's a joke bomb. Like a, a, a grenade, you kind of roll it out there and it blows up in a little bit. You're on your way home, you go, oh, oh, yeah, that, your retirement's better than Polycarp's. Okay, never mind. It's just getting worse, all right? <laughs> all right, number eight. In all seriousness, though, this church is the church that suffers persecution, okay? That's important for your notes. And it's important to remember that as you listen to what Christ has to say. Look at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. Who's that? Jesus. It's these uh, ways that, he just, uh, that they describe Jesus. It's marvelous, isn't it? First, the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? Other parts of the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Right? Sounds like the churches of Macedonia. In fact, the same words are used of them. Right? Because we like to equate prosperity, right? Personal prosperity with blessing from the Lord, right? And personal prosperity also would qualify us to evaluate ourselves and say, well, we, we're rich, right? But um, that's not always the case, is it? We can be rich and not have personal prosperity. We can be rich uh, in the Lord's eyes and be struggling, can't we? And be under terrible persecution. See, that's, that's sometimes the Lord's will for us. Now, uh, listen to what First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 8, 1 says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The grace of God is poured out there, but listen to the description, and you wouldn't equate that in our own mind. That in a great ordeal of affliction... That doesn't sound like the grace of God is poured out in the church, does it? A great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They're struggling under persecution. They're struggling with very little, and they're overflowing with generosity. That's why the grace of God is evident there, isn't it? Now listen to Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue or a congregation of Satan. Verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until then. I'll give you the crown of life. Ten days specifies just a brief period of time. We can just kind of look at it that way. Be faithful, he says, to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. James 1.12, Romans 6.6-11 6, also talk about this crown. It's one of the five crowns given by Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. It's given to those who are martyred and to those who endure temptation. Both receive the crown. Why? Well, the martyr, martyrdom, of course, because your, your, uh, your life is ended as a result of your testimony. And for those who endure temptation, really, because that is dying to self, Right? When you can say no to temptation, when, you, when you're overcoming temptation, you are dying to self. When you're martyred, you're dying to self, aren't you? So both of those are rewarded by that crown. Remember, we commented on that uh, diadem of buildings surrounding Mount Pagos there. That was considered the crown of Rome. Well, it's referred to here. I'm going to give you a real crown. Be faithful even to the point of death. I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus says, endure, I'll give you a real crown, not the one that Rome says is a crown where you live. I'll give you the real thing. A thing that will endure forever. Nothing negative is said about this church. You probably noticed that. Why? Well, because a church under persecution is always a pure church, isn't it? Why is that? And you know, I can add on top of that that um, an individual under persecution for his faith, true persecution for the faith, 
is a pure individual, too. Church is purged by persecution, beloved. People who are just showing up for whatever reason, once persecution starts, they're out of there. Right? If they don't really believe it, they're not going to stand for uh, somebody taking their life or losing their job for it. Okay? They're not going to die for something they don't really truly believe. They're going to stand around and get killed for something they don't uh, embrace anyway. And that is really the cost of discipleship, isn't it? And we understand that, don't we? I hope we do. For those who have counted the cost, we understand what payment may be required. And that's okay, isn't it? And the Lord gives us grace as we get to that point, I think. So this is a church under persecution in all periods of church history. We have had churches that have been those kinds of churches. There are those kind of churches today. We've had missionaries stand in this pulpit and tell us about just such churches so we understand how that works. Now, I love this next verse, and we're going to end with that because we're out of time. Verse, chapter 2, verse 11. He who has what? That's great. I'm going to tell you about the church, and then I'm going to give you some, some important exhortation, and if you have an ear to hear it, you're going to hear it. He who overcomes, and we know what that is, right, will not be hurt by the second death. What's, what's the first death? Physical death, right? It's the, it's the very apparent cost for the curse, isn't it? It's with us all the time. 100% chance of death, right? And so the first death is physical death. It's always a reminder of how high a price uh, sin exacts. But what's the second death? Go ahead, call it out. For the believer, it's called what? Yeah, spiritual death, separation from Christ forever, right? But we're told it's just the shadow of death for the believer, right? There's no death there for us. We're not hurt by the second death. I remember when I first moved to Lynchburg, I uh, met a guy named Robert Chapman. He pastors now down in South Carolina, a good friend of mine. And uh, on the back of his old pickup truck, he was up at Liberty at the seminary at that time, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. I love that. Never forgot. I jotted it down. I know it's an old uh, bumper sticker, and you've probably seen it around, but uh, not hurt by the second death. That's the real death, beloved. Physical death is not the real death. The real death Separation from God forever in hell. And for those who overcome, they'll not be hurt by the second death. There's no fear there, is there? And we're out of time, 25 till. We'll close, but we will come back, Lord willing, next week. Dig right in, right here, all right? Can I have somebody close in prayer? Would you feel, uh, Joe, would you do that? Joe Prattner, would you close in prayer for me?